Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. But the title of my message today is Cribs and Cruise Ships. Cribs and cruise ships. Um, how many of you, you're big cruisers. You love to go on a cruise. Like it is your peak vacation option. Several of my staff members, it's like all they want to do, right? If ever they're like, I'm going to go on a vacation. I don't even have to ask where they're going to go. They're going to be on a floating buffet somewhere in whatever. Like you don't even have to, that's a nice thing. You can get off the boat and do things or you can just knock it off the boat, right? You can just go from restaurant to restaurant, from buffet to buffet, and just live your dream, right? It is, it's just a floating piece of heaven, and it's magical. And I've been on a couple different cruises with my wife, and uh, they were different experiences. Partially, I think, because we went on a cruise, one of the first, the very first cruise we went on was just the two of us. And then uh, there was a few years where we did not go on a cruise, we did other things for vacation, and then we went back on another cruise uh, with my family, and this time we had two kids, and that was a slightly different experience. Um, totally different, right? The first time, man, the cruise was just, it was all about sleeping in. The room, I, we got in the room, and I'm like, this feels bigger than I thought it was going to be. Look at all this elbow room. Wow. And we slept in. Uh, it was made up of, like, afternoon makeouts, right? I mean, like... Going to the, 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 like the buffet at midnight and just getting ice cream sundaes. I mean, it was glorious, right? And then the one that we went on after we had children was slightly different. I remember just being in the room. We had this like pack and play crib that we had to put somewhere and it didn't even fully all the way fold down. And we're just like, this is good enough. You know what I mean? And it's like probably a death trap. We put a kid in there. It probably scarred them for life. They're gonna have to work through that in therapy. And um, so we had one kid in that. We had one kid sleeping between us. Uh, we were not sleeping in. We were getting up at all hours of the night, which was annoying. Um, there were no midday makeouts. Um, it was mostly just, you know, coming in and out of a room that smelt like diapers is what it was. <laughs> And wishing, being like, how often do they change over these rooms? It needs to be more than once a day, you know? And, um, and it was a lot of, it's still, still like there was a midnight buffet, but it was more for the baby. It was a midnight feeding for the baby where the baby was screaming and crying and just wanted to, to nurse. And, and I was like, I got to get out of here. And so I just went and ate ice cream by myself. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was sadder. It was different, you know, right? It was a different experience. You know, um, I mean, the ice cream still tastes just as good, but I, I seemed like a sadder person, I think, to everybody else on the cruise. Like, who is that strange man in boxers, <laughs> double fisting ice cream cones while crying with a baby vomit on his T-shirt? And uh, it was just, it was where we're at. And I bring all this up because like there is something, and this does not to say the obvious, but like there is something about having and raising kids that changes our relational dynamic as a couple, that shifts the way that romance works between us. Um, you know, when you are married with kids, I think one of the biggest questions that comes into play 
and it exists the whole time you have kids at home, is how do we do this thing? How do we love our kids well without losing ourselves in our marriage in the process? Because we want to be great at parenting. In fact, like that's our hope, right? We want to be better parents than our parents. Isn't that what we're all doing? Like, I'm not going to be like my mom, my dumb dad. I'm not going to do the stuff they did. I'm going to be way better. And we have this vision of what we want to be like, what we want to do for our kids. But also we don't want to be like the other people we know that have kids where it's like, oh man, their relationship totally tanked after they have kids. Like, man, they really lost themselves. They really let themselves go. They really stopped caring about and hanging out with other people. And then we get into that position, right? And we're just like, this is hard. This is difficult. I think I'm going to be all the things I'm afraid that I was going to be because this is a lot of work. This is way more challenging than I thought it was going to be. Um, And I think what adds more complication to this is this assumption that we all have that like when you have kids, you're supposed to put your kids first, right? And so that complication of like, how do I elevate the kids above everything else and still sort of balance these other things that are supposed to be important too? Because this is sort of our cultural ideal that when you have kids, kids come first. And yet the reality of it is this approach I mean, at least from my perspective, seems to be producing a whole lot of heartache for a whole lot of people. You have, uh, and these are just like, like interactions I have with or people that I end up counseling. You have men that come in that are just like, I don't know how to deal with the demotion that I'm experiencing in my wife's life and priorities because now she has a baby and that's sort of what her life revolves around. And that's what's taking her time, energy, and attention. And I, I, I don't blame her for it, but also I'm still upset about it. And I don't know what to do with that. There are women who sink into deep depressions after all their kids ship off to school, right? Whether it's the first time or whether it is, um, you know, on the backside of their upbringing, like they ship their kids off to college and they sink into a depression because they're not really sure who they are without their children, There are couples that I know and spend time with who never miss any of their kids' activities, but have not been on a date or had sex with each other in multiple months. And it's taking a toll. And then there are the couples that we all know or are aware of um, who, man, it's like as soon as that last kid leaves the house, like they can't get that divorce filed fast enough. And you get, you, get this, you get this idea of like, oh, you were just hanging on for the kids. Like that was the only thing really holding you together was the children. And the sad thing about that is you're like, there's no way it started off that way. I mean, nobody wants to end up in any of these places. And none of us think we're going to. And yet this is such a pattern in our culture with so many people that we know that there are a lot of young couples now that are just deciding that they're going to opt out altogether, that they don't want to have kids because they see it as this either or proposition. And the reason they see it this way is observation, right? In their mind, it's like you can either have a lasting romance, friendship, and security with your partner, or you can have kids, and if I have to choose between the two, why would I introduce a new variable that I don't know how it's going to be and give up this one thing that I already like and enjoy that's working for me? Now, I'm not saying that everybody can or should have kids. In fact, for, for some of you, this is a tough topic because you're like, wouldn't it be nice? 
In fact, I think sometimes that becomes the other drag on a relationship is that the desire to have kids becomes the entire focus of the relationship. And then not having them becomes such a drain that like this thing that we want to do together actually is the thing that ends up breaking us apart. It ends up being a, a sore subject for a lot of people in a lot of ways for a lot of very different and very personal reasons. And I think the big question that comes up is why does, just from cultural observation, why does raising kids seem to choke out romantic love? And, you know, if you've ever wondered this, you should know that you're, we're not the first people to wrestle with this very important and very real question. This has been a struggle that humans have had ever since they started falling in love and having kids. And there is a, a prime example of this in the book of Genesis. Like, you, the, the, one of the first few stories in Scripture is people having kids and then asking themselves this question. Okay, wow, this is interesting. How do we, how do we love these kids well without losing ourselves and our marriage in the process? And this story that I'm going to read you, it's found in Genesis chapter 24, and it spans multiple chapters. We're going to look at some highlights together. Um, but it begins with Abraham, whose middle-aged son, Isaac, is a great guy. But um, he's still single, and his dad is just like, I mean, seriously, you, like, when are you going to get married? It tells us that he's 40. He's like the original 40-year-old virgin, this guy. And he, his dad is like, I want to, you know, if you want to be single, that's fine. And the, the kid's like, no, I would love to meet someone, but there's just like no real, there's no prospects around here. And some of you are like, I hear that. I've had that conversation as well. And so the dad is just like, tells his servant, he's like, why don't you go back to where we're from, to like my hometown, my home country. There are some great families there, some, some, some great people there, and find a prospect that maybe you could bring back and introduce to my son, and then maybe something could like blossom and grow from there. And so the servant sets out on this matchmaking mission, and when he arrives at the place that Abraham originally came from, uh, he is tired and he's thirsty and he stops at this well and he wants to get a drink. And just as he's about to get a drink, he asks God, he's like, God, you got to help me. Like, I don't want to fail on this mission. I want to be a good employee. I want to make this thing go well. This is like the hardest thing I've ever had to do, right? I mean, like, you know, hey, go check this box is, uh, and like maybe bring in some lumber is different than find my son, the woman of his dreams, right? That seems like a bigger, more pressure, right? And as he's praying this and thinking this, this, this woman walks up. And that's sort of where we pick up the story. So this is found in Genesis chapter 24, verse 16. It says this, Rebecca, this is the woman that walks up, was very beautiful and old enough to be married, but still a virgin. And the servant said, please give me a drink of water. And she did. And when she'd given him a drink, she said, I'll water, I'll draw water for your camels too. Now this is verse is really like in an Old Testament way, trying to tell us why she is an incredible catch. Um, and it begins by telling us that she is very beautiful, right? So like right away, he notices how beautiful she is, that she is old enough, which is, which sounds creepy, right? Um, when you're listening back then this. And what it's really trying to tell us um, in, a, in an ancient uh, awkward way is that like she is mature. There's a maturity to her and the way she, that she presents herself and the way that she carries herself and all that sort of stuff. Then it tells us she's a virgin, which is, again, sort of an antiquated bible way of saying she's a person of character. And all these things are attractive. And then she also demonstrates that she is hardworking 
and selfless. Like she helps somebody that she just met. She doesn't just do the thing that he asked her to do. She's like, well, it seems like you could use help with this and this too. And she sort of helps him. And man, he's just blown away. He's like, man, this girl is the total package. This is the person that I was supposed to find. Like, and so he goes, he talks to her family, he arranges for her to come back and meet Isaac. And this is how that goes. This is uh, verse 63 of the same chapter. It says, one evening as Isaac was walking and meditating in the fields, he looked up and saw camels coming. And when Rebekah saw Isaac, she quickly dismounted. Who is that man? (laughs) She asked. And the servant replied, my master. (laughs) This This is what you want, guys. You want this moment, right? Where the first time she sees you, she's just like, who is that man? And whoever your wingman happens to be at the moment is like, uh, yeah, that's the guy I was telling you about. And she's like, oh my me. And that's sort of the scene that is unfolding. She's just as impressed with him. And there's like lots of little details buried in here about why he's a catch as well. He's walking through his fields, like fields that he owns, which means he is financially secure. Guys, this is very attractive to ladies. He's meditating, right? Which means he's spiritually minded, right? He's not shallow. And he is hot enough to dismount a camel for, okay? (laughs) Hot enough to where you're just like, we're still a ways off. And then you're just like, oh, and then you got to get out that camel and be like, who is that man? Oh, that's him. Is he meditating? What? Yeah, he usually does right after he gets out of his therapy session. Oh, my gosh. Oh, dear Jesus. And so they meet, they talk, they get to know each other. They decide they want to be together. It says this in uh, verse 67 that uh, they, get, they get married. It says, Isaac brought Rebecca into his tent. It actually tells us in another version that it's his, his mother's tent, which is a little less hot. Um, I'm guessing she is not there at the time, hopefully. Brings her into his mother's tent, and she becomes his wife, which is sort of a euphemism for things that happen when you bring a woman that you just married into your tent. It says that he loved her deeply, and she was a comfort to him. So they get married. Their love is passionate and sweet and fun, and they just like being together, like doing stuff together. They like just talking into the night. It just feels like they, they start a conversation, and they're hanging out, and they're like, oh, my God, the sun's coming up. We gotta, there's other stuff we got to end up doing because they're just so enwrapped in each other. It's comfortable. It's connected. They can't imagine anything coming between them. And then she starts talking about having kids. And at first, he's just like, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I'm ready. I don't know if it's time. And, and she's very excited about it. And so she convinces him because women have ways <laughs> of convincing. And a lot of those convincing ways uh, lead to children, too, which is interesting. <laughs> and it was such a big deal to her that um, Isaac was just like, Wait, she needs to have a child or like this thing is not gonna go good between us. So it says uh, in uh, verse, uh, this is chapter 25, verse 21, that Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. So this is like something that she wanted. 
that he wanted for her, that they wanted together, but it wasn't happening. It was creating the stress and strain on their relationship. And he was just pleading, God, you gotta do something. And the Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebecca became pregnant with twins. God's a little bit of an overachiever, right? It's like, God, that's not, that's cool. You know, I was just at one was good, but you gotta double it up. That's fine. And they have the twins. And so they're elated. I mean, this is everything that they wanted. And they get to do it together. And I mean, yes, not everything they bargained for. Raising twins is tough, but they're up for it. They're in love. And they can't wait to just see where the future takes them because this is everything that they'd spent their life up to this point dreaming that they would eventually get to. And yet here's what's interesting. When we fast forward this story, just a couple chapters, the boys are grown. Things between Isaac and Rebecca are totally different than they're presented at the beginning. The relationship has changed. The kids have grown, and as the kids have grown, and as they've raised the kids, their relationship with each other has shifted. And let me show you what I'm talking about. Verse, uh, this is chapter 27 of Genesis, verse 8. It says, Rebecca said to Jacob, do, this is one of her sons, do exactly as I say. Bring me two young goats. I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Take it to him so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. But my brother is a hairy man and I'm not. What if my dad touches me? He'll see that I'm trying to trick him. But his mother replied, just do what I tell you. Which for some of you moms is just validating. You're like, we've been saying that since the dawn of time. <laughs> oh, I feel so reassuring, right? How many times is your, you'd be like, okay, here's what you need to do. This is going to help. And your kid's like, nah, nah. And you're like, just do what I tell you. It's an exclamation point in the story. Like she's like, please make it happen now. But this is the question that I think comes up for me as I look at this story. How did Isaac and Rebecca go from being madly in love and deeply connected to her elaborately tricking her husband into giving one of her sons something that technically belonged to the other? What happened in the in-between? We went from nothing will ever come between us. Our love is stronger than anything to this place of, I am willing to lie and cheat you for the sake of one of our kids. How does that happen? Like what happened here? Because here's the thing. It still happens a lot to a lot of people, a lot of couples who go in with just as much excitement just as much love, just as much like, man, this is going to go forever and end up in the same broken place. And I think part of it is, you know, when we go into marriage, we're so excited about what it's going to mean on like just an in love swoony, we're going to be together for everything. But part of the thing that we don't realize is that marriage forces us to face ourselves in a way that nothing else can, which means it surfaces things that before we were married, we could hide from each other or even ourselves, right? We could, we could just kind of ignore it or we could push it down or we could kind of like cover it up. But once you get married, you're together all the time. It's difficult to sort of hide those things about you from them. Her trust issues, his tendency to work too much, the way she compulsively overshares with people without his permission, 
the way he sort of shuts down anytime feelings come up. And you pile on top of all that, the stress of work and budgeting and health concerns and aging parents. And the combined pressure eats away at the intimacy between you. And you get to that place where you're just like, the honeymoon is over. All of that first night in the tent energy is gone, okay? <laughs> and real life is set in. And, and you, you try and ignore it, but you both feel the tension of life. And you want to work through it, but you don't know how. And talking about it only seems to make it worse. You end up in this season where people are like, just talk it out. And you're like, we try, but everything it feels like is a fight, Except one thing. There is one thing that you agree on. You both want what is best for the kids. And so what you end up doing is you put your issues, yours personally and yours as a couple, on the back burner, and you instead channel all your energy into the children. But the more you turn away from each other and toward your kids, the more the distance between you grows. And you are getting less and less of your need for connection and closeness and comfort from your spouse, but the needs are still there. And so you find yourself, maybe even unintentionally, looking to your kids to meet them. But I got to tell you, when we underinvest in our marriage and over-nurture our kids, looking to them, not our partner, to meet our emotional needs, our intimacy erodes every time. And the more it erodes, the more we focus on our kids. And the more we focus on our kids the more it erodes. And it becomes this cycle of us over-nurturing and under-investing. And we see this with Isaac and Rebecca. Like even pretty early on, when their kids are still like, like elementary school age, Genesis chapter 25, verse 28, it says this, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebecca loved Jacob they already have favorites. It's still early on in the game. And they're just like, you know what? Things between us are weird. we got stuff going on. This, I didn't know about you, like when I saw you in the field and you look so hot. But now that we've been together for a while, that's really frustrating and annoying. And you know what? It's just so much easier to just pay attention to this one kid that's a little bit like me, and I like that. And they're both doing it. And I think this happens to us. Our marriage drifts apart and we drift toward our kids. And it helps, at least us. We feel less alone. And we feel less alone while all the while getting to avoid uncomfortable conversations with our spouse or having to address issues with them or in us. But what we don't realize during this process is the enormous burden that it puts on our kids. And they can't fully articulate it, but they feel it. And it bleeds out of them in them saying things like, you know, my mom needs me to do this, you know, uh, or else she can't be happy. Man, if I don't make the, if I don't make the team, my dad is going to be so mad at me. Like his life is going to be over. His life is going to be over? I can't go out on Valentine's Day because I have to stay home and be with my mom. She needs me. I have to do this thing for my dad this certain way because if I don't, he says that my mom is going to yell at him and I don't want to create fights between them. I don't want to be responsible 
for their breakdown. Some of these things, that, like these statements, they feel like a gut punch for some of us in very real and specific ways because you grew up feeling this way. Like it was your responsibility to meet your parents' needs, to make them happy and keep the peace. You weren't really free to fully be a kid because you were so preoccupied with trying to manage all the adults around you, which is never really supposed to be your job. And when kids are put in this position, when we put this kind of pressure on children, it creates all sorts of problems. They struggle to discover their own identity, develop a sense of self-confidence, and pursue their own passions. What they end up doing instead is taking on their parents' anxiety and live in fear of doing the wrong thing and ultimately acting out in a variety of different ways. And that's exactly what these two boys do. Genesis chapter 25, verse 27 says, As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, but Jacob preferred to stay at home. Again, we're told this, Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game. Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And one day when Jacob was cooking, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. And Jacob said, uh, and he said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, trade me your rights as the firstborn son. I have two boys, and this is so funny to me because this is sort of like the banter that experiences between the two of them. What we see here is that Esau is trying to be as manly as he can, hunting and killing. Why? At least partially to impress and win his dad's approval. And Jacob knows he can't do that. He doesn't have those skills. Like he feels like he's already gotten the message that his dad's not gonna like the kind of person he is. So he leans hard into trying to become someone that his mom would approve of. And that works out really well for him. And so he just sort of stays in that lane. And, you know, they both have things that they're better at than the other one. Esau is way stronger, but Jacob is way smarter. And so there are times when Esau overpowers Jacob, but there are many more times where Jacob manipulates his brother because he's able to. That's how he can get the upper hand. And then it devolves into Rebecca helping Jacob cheat her husband, which ends up tearing the whole family apart and having consequences for generations. And this is why the writers of Scripture frequently tell us, listen, Doing this, living your life this way is not wise. You want to have the best possible family dynamics. You want to stay in love for a long period of time. You want to raise kids least likely to wind up dysfunctional down the road. There's a better way to order your relationships. In, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 21, there's an example of this. And I want to just point out something about this, like, uh, pay attention to the order of this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and treat and never treat them uh, harshly. Children, always obey your parents. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they'll become discouraged. Now, everyone always gets hung up on this word submit, and essentially what it means is to prefer, to consider, right? To actually take into account what is best for the other person. Um, and, and both the husband and the wife are to to love and to consider and to mutually submit to one another. And what I want to point out here is that the order is not incidental. 
And technically, if we back up even further, the first thing that we're told is not something about husbands and wives, but something we're told about God's love for us. That God loves us and that our devotion to God ought to outrank everything because we only even know how to love or what love is because God loves us and we experience his love. But the first thing this author is telling us about our earthly relationships is like, he starts with husbands and wives. And he's like, your first responsibility is to each other. And then he moves on to kids and parents. And what I think is interesting about this is our culture does the inverse. Our mindset is cater to your kids first. And then if you have anything left over, just try and be nice to your spouse. Is that it? I mean, if, that's, if you can muster that, you're doing great. Why does God instruct us in multiple places in the Old and New Testament not to put our kids first? Is it because he doesn't like kids? No, it's because he understands a, a particular principle. The healthy adults with healthy marriages produce healthy kids. And if you try and reverse engineer this thing, you may not end up with any of the three. But the trickle down of beginning to like pursue your personal health, your personal emotional, spiritual, relational and physical health, then focusing your energy on your marriage and how that is gonna work, that those things combine trickle down to every single decision you make for your kids, the way you talk to your kids, the way you treat your kids, the way you raise your kids. And ultimately, your kids become a reflection of who you are. Which means if you are not healthy and you don't know how to have healthy relationships, what you end up passing on are children who are not healthy and don't know how to have healthy relationships. And no amount of trying to manufacture being the perfect parent and hiding away who you really are is going to do the job. See, the more focused we become on our kids, not only does our, our marriage and our sense of self suffer, but so do our kids. Because ultimately, the best thing for our kids is to be raised by parents who process their emotional baggage prioritize their marriage, address conflict clearly and calmly, and invest in adult friendships. And these things are so significant. I want to unpack a little bit about, about what I mean by these things. The first thing, process your emotional baggage, okay? Pro this is a prime thing. You want to have great kids and raise your kids well, process your own emotional baggage. Because here's the reality. You really only have two choices. You can process it or you can pass it on. And some of you are like, whoa, I didn't even want to go through it. I don't even like carrying it. If you don't like carrying it, why would you want to give it to them? And you will if you don't work through it first. The reality is anxious kids aren't born their bread. Okay, it is a reaction to something or someone in their life. And because you are the biggest piece of their life, it's likely that some of that anxiety they're experiencing is from you. I wonder if you've ever thought to ask yourself or them, what about me is creating that in you? What about me is creating that in you? 
If you want your kids' lives to be better, address what is holding you back. Face your shortcomings. Admit to your weaknesses. Let them see you working on yourselves. Because not not only will those adjustments uh, improve your relationship with them and improve your relationship with yourself, but it'll actually give them a model, a path to follow that when I don't have it all together in my own life, I've already seen a grown adult work on themselves. So maybe I have the ability to do it too. Can you, I mean, some of us, we can't even imagine our, what our lives would be like today if our dad actually addressed his anger issues when we were a kid. If our mom actually took into account like her body image issues and worked on those things before we grew up and left the house, we would be completely different people. But because they didn't process through it, they passed it on to us. And now we are carrying it. And you'll pass it on too unless you deal with it. The second thing, prioritize your marriage. And here's what I mean by that. I'll just be really blunt. Make it obvious to your kids that they will never come between you and your spouse. Do not allow them to play you against each other. And they will try. Don't side with them over each other. The kids need the stability of being able to know that you have a strong, connected relationship with your spouse. And this means that they need to see how a real relationship works in a healthy way in front of them. Your kids need to see you serve one another and prefer one another and encourage one another and flirt with one another and be affectionate with one another and apologize to one another and even fight in front of each other and then work out the issue in front of them. Some of us, we think that we have bragging rights of like, you know, um, we have never fought in front of our kids. Great. You know what that means? They have no idea how to fight with someone because they've never seen it. Or maybe all they see is the fight and they never see the makeup or the apology. And so they want to stay away from fighting altogether because it just means like, you yell and scream and then you disappear and then the next day you're better? Kids need to see you healthily having a disagreement and watching you work it out in front of them. There, my kids could tell you so many examples of times where something got tense in the room because their mother and I have a disagreement on something and we talk it out and we're aware that they're there and all my kids like sort of stiffen up and they, but they won't leave the room because they're just like, this is scary and amazing. What is going to happen? <laughs> and we're talking it out and then we get to the thing and then, um, and there are other times where we have to circle back around and just say like, hey, uh, you were there and you watched me get frustrated about this and I raised my voice to your mother and I, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have yelled at her about that. Or I said something I wish I wouldn't have said in front of you. And that's my bad. And I apologize to her in front of them because they need to see it. Like we pick up how to do things by watching other people do them. Your kids need to see every aspect of a healthy relationship that's age appropriate for them. They need to be able to witness that so they know how to do it. The third thing is to address conflict clearly and calmly. Like, your kids need to see that you don't talk behind each other's back because that's not the kind of relationship you have. 
that you don't play passive aggressive games, that you don't steamroll people by powering up and yelling and demanding your own way, and that you don't fight with each other by sending messages through them. Now, you want to wreck your kids. That's a great way to do it. Take jabs at your spouse through your kids. They need to see that when something bothers you, that you go to that person, that you address it with them, that you explain yourself clearly, that you say what hurt you, that you are vulnerable, that you ask for what you want, that you explain why, that you listen to their perspective, that you take ownership of your part and how you contributed to the issue and you negotiate a healthy way forward. Kids need to see this because our tendency is to do one or the other. We either like have this passive aggressive thing where we're like, we're not clear and nobody knows what you're really mad about or why, or it's not calm. It's just explosive. It's either confusing, right? Or it is just steamrolling. Kids need to see another way of doing things. And the fourth thing is they need to be raised by parents who invest in adult friendships. It's healthy for your kids to see that, that your life is bigger than just them and your spouse. Like, and I know it's, it's this great thing of like, it's just us. That's probably dangerous. That's too much pressure for just that little circle to, to have to experience. You can't get everything you need exclusively from your immediate family. You need other people to talk to and vent to and get advice from and care about and do things with. And not only is it good for you, it's good for your kids because it takes the pressure off of them to be your everything, which they cannot be. A lot of people don't know how to have healthy friendships now as adults because, again, they've never seen it modeled. I never seen my mom have good friends, healthy friends. I never seen my dad have any friends at all. So I don't, I don't know how to do it. I don't know what it looks like. And because of that, we put... We, we end up exiting our family of origin and putting all this pressure on our romantic partner and then putting all this pressure on our kids because we don't know how to spread out our relational needs among a small circle of people that we can trust. And again, I, this may feel like a lot to you as you look at these four things, but it's, it, the goal is not perfection. It's to make progress. You don't have to address everything at once. Just shift slightly. And I'm telling you guys, a slight shift makes a massive difference. I think it's amazing, like, when you're on a a cruise ship, that, like, this massive floating city is really steered by a very small rudder. And when they want to go, like, aim the boat, like, somewhere totally different, they'll adjust it just one degree. And the rudder adjustment of one degree actually over time shifts the destination dramatically. And some of us think like, man, if I want my life or my romance or my relationships or my kids to end up somewhere different than like I ended up or like I think we're gonna, like I think if I play this thing out where we're gonna end up down the road, you don't need to overhaul everything. You may just need to adjust one or two little things. And those little adjustments Will of, of turning the rudder, I think, of your life, of your relationship decisions, of your marriage, has the ability to completely shift the focus of your entire family. Small adjustments in your marriage in the short term will significantly improve your kids' lives in the long term, which is why 
I want to challenge you to ask yourself, like, what do I need to do to prove to my partner that they're still my passionate priority? This is a good question, whether you have kids or not. Because as relationships age, sometimes we start feeling like, man, we are playing second fiddle to so many other things in their life. And we married them so that like, like I get it, you got, you're gonna put God first, but like, like on earth, real physical people, like I'm your number one, right? And for some of us, that's not the case. It's like, man, I feel like your job is number one. I feel like our kids are number one. I feel like your workout schedule is number one. I feel like your softball team is number one. I feel like this remodel project is your number one. What would it look like for you to prove, to communicate to your partner in a way they understand that they're still your passionate priority? How do you keep love alive? And man, if you're not able to answer this question on your own, the convenient thing is you could just ask them. They probably know what they want you to do. And I wonder what would happen if you did. One of the, the first times Gretchen and I went to couples counseling after we had kids, we were struggling with some things, trying to figure out how to work some things out with our kids. And the therapist said something very powerful to me that I'll never forget. I was just like, what about this? And how do we get our kids to do this? And how do we whatever? And the, the thing that she said, she stopped me and she just said, I'll tell you this. Here's the first thing to focus on. The greatest gift you could ever give your kids is a healthy mom and dad. Start with you, the two of you, and the trickle down, transform everything. And that's what I want to pray into your life today, that you will manage the, the tension of loving your kids well without losing yourself and your marriage. God would give you the wisdom and the support to be able to do that with his help by embracing his love for you first. Would you bow your heads across this room as we just invite God to do with our little effort things that we could never do in the deepest places of our story. God, thank you so much for the way in which you love us, you invest in us, you grow us, you challenge us, you transform us. God, we're thankful for the love that you put in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us not to ignore or backburner our children, but to love them well by loving each other well first. God, may you remind us of why we fell in love with this person in the first place. Um, it was because we wanted a partnership, a connection with them. The bonus was what we got to produce with them. And God, I pray that you would remind us of the first love in our family, each other. God, I pray that as we absorb and embrace your love for us, that we'd be able to channel that in healthy ways towards each other and that we would feel it, our kids would feel it, that everything would get better because we love each other like you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. 
We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.